Cowabunga, dudes and dudettes, and welcome to Turtle Tales Radio. I'm your host, Rob. We are in full swing here in June, and uh, the quarantine, at least in Tennessee, it's kind of been lifted in some some ways. The parks are open again, and it's so nice to take my kids out there and and, uh, and play and try to do the whole social distancing thing at the same time. It's uh, It's been a challenge, but anyway, I hope you all are safe, and I hope you all are well during this pretty crazy time we're still living in. Uh, it's been an interesting year to say the least. So, as far as housekeeping goes, I want to say that I'm in the process of starting episode three of Turtle Tales Radio, the the mainstay show and everything, um, where I'm going to be covering issue number two of the Tales of the TMNT comic book called Nobody's Fool. I also got some feedback uh, from Corey and Keith. I will be posting that on the next episode. So, hopefully mid-July, which I know is a long way away, um, I will have that episode um, posted for you. So, Corey and Keith, I haven't forgotten about you guys. Really appreciate the feedback. And if you guys have any more feedback you'd like for either the first issue of Tales of the TMNT, Volume 1, or just any feedback in general you'd like to send, please send me an email at turtletalesradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media, or you can always give us a call at 865-309-4875. All right, now down to business. This month's radical retro, radical rerun, I almost said rewind, I'm all over the place, uh, is one of my favorite episodes. I mean, I guess these all are my favorite episodes that I'm posting here, but this is the one that I think really set the tone for a lot of things in my experience podcasting. So in this episode, my good buddy Josh and I, we talked to Pat Fraley. I think it was only episode four or five of the actual podcast. And as you could tell in the last rerun episode, <laughs> we, we had a lot of editing techniques to work on, a lot of my personal quirks to work on, which I'm still working on like 10 years later. But we got to talk to Pat Fraley. And what blew my mind about the whole experience is how easy it was, the entire thing. I literally just sent the guy an email, said we were big fans, and not really expecting any kind of response. And sure enough, about a week later, I hear from him. And he goes, yeah, Rob, I'd love to be on your show. Absolutely. Sounds good. Just let me know a time. I was blown away. I'll never forget thinking, wow, that was way easier than I expected it to be. So, you know, the buildup going into it, I'm, I'm starting to get really psyched up. I'm telling my buddies at work and everything. Josh is super excited. And... um comes the day for recording and I am a nervous wreck because I'd never up until this point I had never had any kind of interview before um so I was a nervous wreck I was so nervous in fact that I actually had to write the introduction for him because I was afraid if I just tried to wing it I would botch it and as you hear in the interview I'm sure I botched some things but the most important thing was if, if you can just pay attention to Pat Fraley and his his advice, and he's just a fountain of information, and he is ridiculously funny. Um, I just had such a blast talking to him. And, um, you know, it got really, as I went back and listened to most of the episode, I always kind of cringe when I hear myself, but when I went, went back and really listened to, to Pat, I was just amazed at how the conversation had kind of turned to our faith toward the end. He is a fellow Christian. I'm a Christian as well, and Josh, and uh, doesn't mean we're perfect. The Lord knows we've made a lot of mistakes. But I just thought it was really touching that we got that heartfelt and sincere at the end of the episode. I didn't kind of see our conversation going that way originally, and it did. 
And as far as Pat Freely goes, he set the bar, I think, for us personally in the kindness that we would experience for the next seven years doing the podcast. He set the tone, too, because every other guest we had on the show have been very similar to Pat in how gracious, how kind they are, um, and also how knowledgeable they are. In my entire experience doing Turtle Flakes, I never ran into a single jerk. And that just blows my mind. Uh, so I'm just so grateful for this episode, so grateful for Krang, and just so grateful that you're here listening with us. So this episode, which was episode 6 of Turtle Flakes, originally aired October 19th of 2013. So anyways, I hope you guys enjoy this this episode. Once again, just overlook my quirks and uh, just listen to Pat. He is a fountain of information and just a wonderfully entertaining guest. So that's all I've got to say for now. I hope you guys have a great month. And as always, Calbunga. dudes and dudettes, and welcome to a very special edition of Turtle Flakes Podcast. Today we have the great privilege of interviewing a voice acting legend who has starred in literally dozens and dozens of classic cartoons, movies, and video games. Scooby-Doo, Smurfs, The Jetsons, Rainbow Bright, G.I. Joe, Ghostbusters, DuckTales, Tiny Toon Adventures, The Tick, The Addams Family Cartoon, Batman, Toy Story, the list goes on and on. Uh, we know him as our favorite uh, maniacal, albeit hilarious, brain crang from the original Teenage Mutant Turtle cartoon. Ladies and gentlemen, live from Dimension X, we have Mr. Pat Fraley. Well, what a wonderful day to That was a very, very good introduction for me. Definitely all a big nerd. <laughs> well, you know, I figured you came all the way from Dimension X. You know, the least I could do is write you an introduction. I know. Now, uh, you guys, I mean, I, I'd forgotten some of those shows you listed off. I mean, the one that's funny is uh, Rainbow Bright, because when we were doing it, we thought it was so stupid, you know. And of course, you know, the stupid factor is good. We didn't know that at the time. <laughs> and uh, I think at Ninja Turtles, you know, uh, after the first season... We did know that it was going to be a hit. When we first, I, I remember when I auditioned for it and I read the title Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I thought, well, this is going to go nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's my intuition. But once we got into it, uh, it was uh, it was apparent because the casting was so good on the Turtles. I mean, all those guys, like Barry Gordon, who played Donatello, he he's like an egghead. I mean... <laughs> Barry Gordon was going to law school and studying law books literally while we were recording. Wow. And so he, he is an idiot. 
And Townsend is kind of goofy. Coleman, who played Mick and Alan Show. And, and Rob Paulson is the poster boy for being a smart aleck. So he was perfect. <laughs> Raphael. And, and Cam Clark was a very straight guy. And so he was perfect for Leonardo. So I knew listening to those four guys as we recorded, boy, uh, that was a really good casting circumstance. So, I mean, I, I got to ask you, like, starting from the very beginning, I mean, how did you even get into voice acting? Is that something you always wanted to do? No. When I was four years old, I wanted to be a performer. I didn't even know what it was called. I just knew that I liked people laughing at me, and <laughs> uh, my mom encouraged me. She'd go, oh, uh, uh, Pat, go downstairs and put the tea cozy on your head and do your Chinese man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, like I come up and entertain the family, and um, you know, I, it, so it got down to my mom told me I was special at four, and the rest of my career has been proving her right. Wow. You know, I went to school and studied acting. You know, a kid in the middle class going to public school, if you, if, you know, uh, back in the day, they didn't have comedy clubs or any other options. You went into theater, and you did plays. Right. And so I did plays in high school, and then I went. I did plays and drama in college, and then in graduate school I studied acting, and then I went to Australia. I emigrated to do Shakespeare. You know, I wasn't that good at it. You know, it was okay, but somebody um, at the theater called the, or somebody at a radio station called the theater and said, uh, "Oh, yeah, do you have anybody that can do a Jimmy Cagney accent?" And they went, oh, no worries, mate, we've got a yank in the company. Because they think all, all Americans sit around bars and do impressions of each other, because they think we do. Right. So I went in there, I went, there went into the radio uh, station, actually it was in the studio, Max Pepper's studio, and I did my little impression of Jimmy Cagney. And when I left, they said, oh, we like you. And I went, why? And they said, because you're so big, we can't get the other actors to be that big. And I went, oh... All my life, people have said, you're too big, and now they're saying there's money there. <laughs> and so, so what I did is I came back to the States after a couple of years. Um, I thought I was going to do stand-up comedy or something, and, and this is like, this is so stupid, but it's, it's true. I went on vacation with my uh, wife to Tahiti, and we met a producer from Hanna-Barbera there. And I hadn't really thought of cartoons. I'd done a few commercial cartoons. But that was my connection, and uh, within, I think, about three or four months, I was in Los Angeles doing my first uh, Scooby-Doo episode. And that's how, that's how I got into animation. Something in there that would be of value to other people is that I saw where I was best, and I went for that. You know, I would have loved to have done other things, like I did a little TV, I did movies and stuff, but I, I was best at cartoon work. And so that's where I went. That's how God served me up a career. I was wondering how you felt when the Turtles show was presented to you. Uh, it probably seemed like a strange premise. And like you said, it sounded like that wasn't something that was going to take off. Uh, but it did. Right. Well, you never know. Um, um, but it was kind of odd for me because uh, I replaced the guy that, was, that cast himself as Krang. Apparently the director, the director had cast himself as Krang, um, Vernon, and Baxter, I think all, and he was the director, and he did, he did the pilot on a weekend or a Saturday, which cost more, and so the producer was really mad, he fired him. And so I was called in to replace that voice. And, and it wasn't a, by the way, it wasn't a replacement. He just said, here's the role, and I read 
the description, it was so wacky, you know, like <laughs> blurring, bubbling, chortling, disgusting blob of a brain, crafty and villainous, but funny. <laughs> so, I just put together a bunch of different things together that sort of would sound like he was undulating. So I got that sound, right? And then um, every, I, and I thought, well, if he's disgusting, he'll burp. And, you know, I just would do that trick of, uh, you know, bringing air in to make burping like, <laughs> and, and I thought I was smart enough to know that they'll never let me do that between the lines because everything moves really fast in animation. And at recess, you know, probably in third grade, I learned how to talk backwards. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd done something like that on a show called Galaxy High where I was Coach Ferdy Frogface. And uh, a couple <laughs> years before, uh, Nancy Cartwright and I and a bunch of people had done that. So I just uh, added that to the mix. I got the role. And, and the funny thing is, we, we did that, I, I think I did Crank for maybe nine years or eight years. I don't remember. Mm. Um but the, the, the director, Susan Blue, never knew what I was doing when I went, like that. <laughs> and she goes, the only note, she'd go, oh, Pat, don't go low like that right there. Don't go low. So that was pretty funny. You, you said you got the job. Were they immediately blown away by, you know, your crang? No, you know, well, I don't know. Everyone liked it, but I wasn't the star. The person that, funny enough, the person that made the cast laugh the most was Pete Renaday doing Vernon. Because Vernon was so afraid of everything. <laughs> it was sort of like scared about things, Vernon. And, uh, and like when him. something would frighten him, he'd just he'd scream like a girl, and we just all laughed so hard at what he... I don't think we ever thought of a breakout performance in that, except we were amused by Pete. <laughs> So, so can I ask you, what is like the typical recording session like? I mean, do do you see st drawings, the storyboards beforehand, and uh, work alongside other voice actors within the same room? I mean, well, you know, it, it, there's no rules, only notions, but generally, you don't get the storyboards before you do a show. Oh, wow. uh, there are some shows you do. When I did uh, Denver, the Last Dinosaur, all uh, oh, years ago, I had to work on it because it was a non-verbal or non-language part, you know, why were you out, yes, <laughs> you know, I had to do stuff like that, and so I had to look at the expressions, uh, and there's one show, I think the Grim Tales of Bill and Mindy, oh, no, I know, uh, there was uh, Fort Totally Awesome, it only lasts a little bit, but they gave us storyboards, generally what happens is you go in, and uh, 24 hours before a show, they, they, they deliver your script. And your script has all the descriptions in it. You know, then you go to the session. These are union sessions. Then you go to the session and you have a recording script without what happens, just the lines. And, you know, the assumption is that you've studied it. Mm -hmm. And then what happens, you're with most of the cast. There's usually one person that's missing and then so one of us dummies in their lines. It's one of the few places where you have an ensemble cast anymore in, in, in voiceover. Uh, interactive, you're always alone, generally always alone, and then they put it, they catch it together. And it's just um, generally the most fun you can have without getting uh, arrested. It's just <laughs> so much fun because always there's nobody that does animation and character voice that's not really skillful because right. uh, you got you got to have the chops. 
and and usually they're very fast and very silly. It, it, it's just hilarious. The ad libs. I mean, you know, it's it's unbelievable what they do. And and there's there's a certain amount of buoying the room, making it light, keep everybody happy because you can't be doing comedy, ha ha ha. And then there's a break for thirty seconds or something, over and over again, and come back up to it. You got to keep it going. Right. And that's what Rob Paulson is so good at. He was always good at amusing us and and uh, keeping the, the the room fun, which is a, uh, and uh, Rob and I always got along famously because we loved to ad lib and we'd get in lots of trouble and beg beg for an ad lib to be taken. And in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the first year they didn't let us do practically anything. But then when it became a hit, they got a little. Uh, precious about it, and we had to beg them. So every three ad libs, they let us take use one. <laughs> so, so can I ask you, were there a lot of ad libs between you and um, James Avery, the voice of Shredder? No, you know James never. <clears throat> he was not an ad libbing guy. He just did that big powerful thing, and he he came from well, I did too. I came from classic theater, so did James. But he's not an ad libbing kind of guy. I would change my lines. You know, I would change mine with him, and it never threw him. He knew what I was doing. Uh, Rob and I did the most ad-libbing. Uh, comedy is king, and the writers aren't in the power structure. Like when I do a sitcom, you, you, yeah, you can ad-lib, but you generally go back to their words. You know, they, they, they have a decision whether they'll do it, and generally they want to hear their words done because they're in a power structure. In animation, traditionally, the writer's not in the power structure, and so the producer goes, hey, his line's funny in yours. <laughs> so uh, the next question we had uh, was, in your opinion, what is the most significant difference between TV uh, or animated uh, voice acting and video game acting? Is the, is the process similar, or what are the differences? 85% um, of, uh, of animation is comedy-driven. 85% of interactive gaming is drama-driven. Hmm. And so you're, you're doing a whole lot more drama. Also, um, much of interactive is, you know, Sin City or uh, movies where it's, it's really melodrama, where, you know, it's very quiet and very important. And so the acting is very important. It's sort of like as if everything, you perform it as if everything's a close-up. Try to be as real as possible, uh, although it gets a little arch, you know. The acting gets a little large, but you try not to get too corny, and they don't want cartoony. They rarely put up with a, a character that's cartoony. So that's the difference is it's much more, and you're, and you're totally reliant on the director because it works so fast, and you have so many lines that the director says, okay, now you're by a campfire, and you're talking to uh, you're, you're the king, and now you're turned. They tell you what it is, and, and you, I rarely ever, ever ad-lib doing an interactive recording because they're up against it. I mean, you don't know whether they've created the design and even the lips movement before you get your lines. It's a big oh, yeah. technologic puzzle, and there's no time to ad-lib. The only time I ad-lib uh, or change the words in a uh, in an interactive is if they have the wrong grammar, say there's like a king that should know better and they give the wrong, you know, uh, further instead of farther or something like that. <laughs> just simply that way. Or it just doesn't make sense. But sometimes the director doesn't know whether we can use it or not. We might have to live with it, so we record it two ways. Usually you have a, a series of two. You used to have a series of three. So you do the line two times. And you do it two different ways so they have a choice, and off you go to the next line. 
what would you say is the biggest challenge of voice acting? Well, that's a good question. You know, I'm trying to think of what's the biggest challenge for some people. I mean, being exaggerated and and being vocally rich is nothing to me. I just, God gave that to me. Um, You know, the first thing that comes to mind is making a living. I mean, I kept a day job. First of all, I I saved my money to come to Los Angeles. And so I, I, I saved two years' worth of uh, money and a lot of most of the money I could make, I saved a lot. So I had a grub stake. You, you guys know what that is? No, no. A grub stake. It's 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 a western. I'm a westerner. Grew up in uh, Seattle, Washington State, and Idaho. A grub stake is 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 money that was saved for people for the prospectors before they went to uh, to you know to seek their fortune digging gold. Grub stake meaning. Um, food steak, like I have enough money for food, grub steak. <laughs> but anyway, you, you know, I'm a teacher. You're going to get a lot of this stuff. But anyway, what I did, what I did was I saved money. Then I came to town and I dragged a couple clients that I could help and, and work with. In other words, I kept my day job as long as I you had to drag me out of it before I was making a living. So it's a challenge uh, to make a living in the arts anywhere or, or in craft and in, in performance and craft. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. You said you were a teacher. Uh, do you teach voice acting? You know? Yeah, uh, pathframing.com. I have free lessons there at my website and also my teaching schedule. I've taught my entire life along with performance. It's always been part of the mix. Sometimes I was working 10% teaching, uh, 90% acting, uh, sometimes the other way around. It, it's always been part of what I do alongside of uh, performance. Do you have to memorize your script by a certain time, or did you read you know straight from the script when you were recording? Yeah, you never memorize your scripts. That's the good news. Right. <laughs> generally, you got your script about you know like um, the night before you went into a session. Oh wow! Th- that was that's easy. That's the easy part. There was you know it's not that hard. I mean, you go in and for years now our day has to be under four hours, and so we would go in. And uh, it only takes about three, because you've got a 22 and a half minute show. Um, oh, there's not, it's not all, you know, there's a lot of action to sh- some shows, so you don't have that much dialogue. So that part's always easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't think there's anything hard about it if you enjoy doing voices. And I think it's, there's a skill to being versatile enough to supply two or three different characters in one show. I mean, when I first did Ninja Turtles, they cast me as Baxter Stockman. We were Baxter the Fly Guy. <laughs> and then they cast me as uh, Burn Thompson. I like Ernie. Go, 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 go. Right? I love Burn. And they cast me as Crane, right? Well, and they also cast me as Vernon. This, this director, I'm telling you, before me, he cast himself in all those parts. And I told the producer, I can't separate those. I can't go that far. And, and so they gave Vernon to Pete Renaday uh, mm. happily because it became uh, such a delight to all of us. Uh, and so there's a skill to separating characters mm. and uh, some craft in there. But, you know, uh, for cartoon work, gosh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not real work. It's fun, got to tell you. <laughs> Getting the jobs can be work. <laughs> what is the most significant moment of your voice acting career? If you had to pick one one singular moment, yeah, yeah. Um, well, they'd be in different they'd be in different ways. I don't know how. To, 
uh, one of the most significant was is that when I was uh, in acting school, I listened to a guy named Charles Lott, an old actor, and he, he had this uh, record uh, called Charles, Charles Lott and Storyteller, and in it, he, he I'm studying voice, right, in, mm-hmm. in school, and at this certain point, he's playing the Chaldean counselor to King. It's, it's the fiery furnace. It's from the Bible. And he's leaning toward the king, and he said, There are sort of people that do not obey nor worship you. They are the Jews. And the way he said Jews was so fraught with everything possible about perception and what they did and what they weren't doing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's, it was an epiphany moment as a young man. I must have been about 22. What you can do with words. So cut to like a, two years ago, maybe. So that's 40 years, because I was, I was studying acting 40 years. I began my career 40 years ago. And, and cut to this, and I'm in Chicago, and there's that big recording of the full Bible, 98 hours, with all the sound effects and stuff with John Voight and Ricky Dreyfus and all these people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they give me, and I'm there, and they want me to do a couple voices on it. And they say, okay, do this one, this one, and this little bit roll. And I look at it, and it's that same exact line. Wow. <laughs> and that was, that was uh, as far as moments that happened right in the studio, that was when I did that mm-hmm. line, and I, of course I did it just like Charles Lawton, an homage, or, or you know, if they don't know where you're stealing it from, it looks original. <laughs> <laughs> that, de- that definitely was a hair-raising moment to me. Wow. To, to kind of take that one step further, like, do you, you know, during your time with the Teenage Mutant Ninja, Ninja Turtles, were there ever any, like, rewarding moments, especially involving kids? I'll tell you, uh, no, not to speak of, but I'll tell you a real rewarding one to me, because, you, you know, you asked me what was a, a moment. Well, that's my, I, I relate the moment, but here's one of the most striking things, mm-hmm. is that when I did uh, Tailspin, I did Wildcat. And he was kind of an ignorant but lovable, you know, sidekick. Oh, yeah, I remember him. And, yeah, they couldn't quite cast him because everyone was playing it dumb, and I decided to play it naive. <laughs> so it was like, hey, but little, we take a wrench or a banana. I forget. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, he kept, and, you know, I didn't think of it, and it was very popular. I didn't think about it, but, you know, I grew up around the deaf because my grandfather taught the deaf and blind in a state school. He was a superintendent of the Idaho sta- uh, State School for the Deaf. And so um, I was around a lot of deaf kids and also kids that were challenged. Now, I wasn't making fun of them, but, you know, it sounds a little challenged. You hear that in it? You know, it sounds a little like, oh, look, a new island on the map. No, it's guacamole. <laughs> so, so I'm playing this kid. I don't think of this character. I don't think anything about it. Twenty years later, I start getting fans getting hold of me that are autistic. And when they were little, they loved that character. Why? Because they go to public school where there's resources for people with Asperger's and, and ADHD and different challenges, and they get brutalized by the kids, right? Right. Then they come home from school, and after school they'd see this cartoon where this challenged character is beloved by all the other characters. And so I started getting this fan base of people and how much it meant to them and how how they loved that character because of that. And I thought, you know what, this is where amusement, and that's really the business I'm in. Amuse, by the way, Greek means not think, 
So I'm helping people not think for a while. Mm. That's where it becomes meaningful when you really serve the heart of someone that is working through adversity. Absolutely. And wow. So I have fans that that uh, that uh, I'm in touch with all the time that uh, have their autism, autism and other challenges. Mm. Yeah, it, it's, it's the way God served up some meaning in my life. Yeah, there uh, are there any projects that you're looking forward to getting into in the future um, that you can think of, or if if they did, uh, if they invited you to do, uh, you know, a new animated series of the Turtles or something else, is there something that you would like to see happen that you would like an opportunity to perform in? Yeah, well, you know, I've got about four or five pilots, and I'd kind of be interested in doing my own stuff, hmm. and so I've got those floating around. Then I'm always interested. I, I just did uh, look for a movie called Box Trolls. Mm. It's uh, it's English, I think, but it's like Pixar and it looks very good. And I'm working on that now with Dee Baker and um, and a couple other guys. I like doing features. You know, I like uh, I had a lot of my work was the lead in really bad animated uh, shows in the '80s and '90s, and you know. And now I get one line in the best movies ever made, so it's kind of a switcheroo. <laughs> and I love I love working in big, wonderfully animated movies and have a little teeny part. I've done everything a hundred times, and so I I love it. But mm-hmm. it's not like a burning desire anymore to I got you know someone said what do you think of your shows and I said honestly I've seen I've probably seen a dozen if that Ninja Turtle shows and other shows. There's series that I've never seen one episode. And wow. so when I really get old, I figure I can just sit in a chair and spend the next <laughs> decade watching what I did. <laughs> Which would be, it would be great, you know. I did, buy, I did buy some of The Tick because I thought that was one of the funniest shows I ever was involved in. Oh, I love The Tick. I remember watching that yeah. all the time. Was that ever interesting conceptually and in the writing? It makes me laugh. And very few things... <laughs> <laughs> Very few shows make me laugh, but that one killed me. Yeah, it's it, there were a lot of um, uh, voice actors, I guess that that were involved in Ninja Turtles that went to the Tick. Is that correct? Yes, uh, Townsend. There were a lot of them that went to the Tick, uh, and the Tick really had. If you look at that uh, cast list, it was all of, all of the luminaries of voiceover were in that. Whereas in uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, we didn't have guests because uh, Fred Wolf. The producer's so cheap. He, he, he made us do everything. I mean, I tease, but it was a great opportunity. But nevertheless, we didn't have guests like the Tech. We brought they brought in. I mean, here you're working alongside of Mickey Dolenz, who was like the drummer for the Monkees. You know, I mean, you had he played Arthur originally before Rob Paulson. You had all sorts of people coming in and playing roles in that. And that was fun. It's always fun to get guests. You know. Oh, absolutely. That's why we got you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> did, did a lot of uh, kids know that you were the voice of Kranger? Was that kind of like a secret thing to you? Well, I'll tell you what. My boys didn't know what I did or could care less, and, and, but they were about <laughs> nine, eight, or seven, and they and they, I went to uh, school, and they shared me, you know, they shared, you know, career day, and I, I let out with Krang, <laughs> and, and the class, or all the kids who were fourth and fifth graders, they all like, went crazy, and my boys were like, what? That's dad. What are they doing? They didn't get it. <laughs> and so that was, that was cool. It was the only time I was cool as a dad. <laughs> and uh, in fact, they used to... Um, give me away or uh, they bid on me an auction that's it they'd auction me away to raise money for a school 
to get like a Cub Scout group to get a call from Crane. So it was great to do Crane because I I they get on the line and they'd have about ten of them in a row and I go, What's your name? Bobby. <laughs> oh really? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Bobby. Get the other little stupid boy. <laughs> and and you know, I, the more I insulted them, the more they laugh. So it was great. I could go, you know, you your time's up, Jimmy. But uh, as people knowing I did crank, um no, you know, it's the thing. Of, that's the thing about voiceover. You you get money, and everybody in the industry knows who you are. So you get respect, <laughs> but you can't get a good delivery. You can't go in and go. Um, Oh, can I have a table by the window? I do the voice of Dinky Duck. <laughs> oh, don't, almost your Dinky, come right this way, and I know. <laughs> you had mentioned um, you like being part of uh, some of the larger productions, and I know you did work with Disney. Was your work with Disney uh, special or different uh, in a major way than than other work that you've done? Um. Well, it's, they got a budget, you know, that's one thing, like Dreamscape and uh, Pixar and Disney and some of the Warner Brothers, they have a budget, that's always nice, the craft service table's nice, they have nice facilities. I'll tell you one thing about Disney, they're very positive. You know, you go you go in the booth and you say, hey, I'm thinking about a, I'm thinking about a voice like that, and th- this is what they'll go, good, now let's do something completely different. <laughs> they, always, they always say, good. <laughs> and so you're always encouraged. It's never like, no, what are you thinking? That's stupid. You never hear anything like that. You rarely hear that anywhere, but it's particularly encouraging. It's nice. I like They have a great engineer um, on the Disney lot. His name's Doc, Doc Kane, and he's wonderful. You know, just a great engineer. He, you know, he'll, he'll uh, record you and even knows how to fix your voice a little bit. And then he'll slide in a cart, you know, a tape recording of some Tom Hanks ad lib that happened five years ago, just to amuse us. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's just a, it's, 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 uh, and you know, there's nothing like when you work for Disney, you bring all your past to it. I mean, I, I walk into the ADR stage now. I'm 64, so it, when I was three years old, Peter Pan came out, the animated Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. So that was the first animated movie that I saw and I walk into a room to perform and that's where they recorded Peter Pan Wow! so you kind of get chills and it's cool it was like Hanna-Barbera I mean it's just wonderful so uh, I, I suppose part of the, the magic of Disney is that uh, you bring so much to the party and when you go to the Disney studio there are no tours of Disney so you walk around and you go to the commissary and there's you know uh, Gina Davis and Tim Allen and because they don't have to worry about being seen in their curlers or anything because it's the lot. So it makes it different because they're not going to get autographed people. They're not going to get paparazzi. Uh, so you get to, you know, sidle up to the uh, burger uh, thing with uh, Gina Davis or something. Wow. I love that. One other question I had was, uh, I saw you did some work in a, in a Star Wars game. There may have been multiple in a, in a Monkey Island game as well. Have you been to, uh, or were you involved with, like, uh, George Lucas or the Skywalker Sound of the Ranch or anything like that? Have you seen, uh, have you been there to record? Or I don't know if they do recordings there. Well, they do, I think, but I, I, I haven't. They record me down here. I work with Dara O'Farrell, who's the uh, head of 
interactive gaming, who I've known for years. And I did a full throttle, and then I think um, oh. really early on, I think I was a uh, leisure suit Larry, maybe in uh, <laughs> Monkey Island. Yeah, like, yeah. Way back, back in the day, some of the first interactive games. But you know, it's always uh, it's always good. But here again, it's sort of like uh, if the director's fun. It's great because it's just you and the director and the engineer. There's no other cast. Oh, okay. I think I, I did one great game that was an ensemble cast. It was called uh, Armed and Dangerous. Okay, yeah, that was LucasArts as well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Check it out. Check it out. It actually was distributed by Lucas, but it was uh, Planet Moon that did it. But that is the, it's a funny game. It has 65 minutes of uh, cutscene. It's like wow. a movie within it, and it's very funny. It's sort of like Monty Python. Uh, armed and dangerous, but that was fun because it was a ensemble cast. But generally, they can't do that. Yeah, Full Throttle is one of my favorite games of all time. Those those interactive LucasArts games are really special to me. Uh, do you know? Do you remember what you what part you played in Full Throttle? Huh? I can't. I'll tell you what. I got stuck into what was it? Um, Bart something. It was back in the day. It was like in the uh, early '90s. It was a game. I got stuck into it. So I mean, it was like three in the morning, going, "Oh, I got to go to bed." <laughs> it had the dark. It had the dark angel. You had to defeat at the end of it. I got that. I got stuck into that really bad. And also, FA eighteen flying FA eighteen uh, missions. A lot of years on on video games. <laughs> Me too. And, uh, Stan yeah. uh, in uh, the Monkey Allen game that you did is one of my favorite characters as well. Yeah, and I think uh, there's other people that have done it. Uh, I think one of the best I, I liked was. Uh, Tim Dadabo, he played Leisure Suit Larry and stuff. I think there's been three or four people that have done it. I was going to ask you, you know, and this isn't one that we had actually written down, but I'm just curious. It seems like the Ninja Turtles, you know, they represent four different personalities. You know, you've got your nerd in Donatello, you've got your leader in Leonardo, uh, you've got your kind of sassy, you know, and kind of tough guy in Raphael, and you've got your uh, comedian in Michelangelo. You know, out, out of those four turtles, right. who do you think you're most like? Oh, that's an interesting question. I suppose, uh, well, see, I don't think of Michel uh, uh, Michelangelo as a comedian. Uh -huh. I, I think of him more as like a um, a dude, you know? Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a party dude. <laughs> right, dude. Uh, I, I think I would be more like Raphael, but without the edge. I mean, I'm a funny guy, mm -hmm. but I think I'd be more like that. But, you know... It's interesting when you when you separate these roles out, and, and as you astutely have, I've got all those aspects. I teach, so I'm like Leonardo. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm like Donatello. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a Christian and have four boys, raised four boys, so I'm sort of like uh, uh, Leonardo that way. I mean, they're kind of the grown-up, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm loose like Michelangelo, and I have a, a sense of humor like Raphael. So, I mean, I didn't answer your question, but that's kind of like what it is. Uh, and, of course, Krang, I'm probably the most like. <laughs> no, that, that was a great answer. I sounded semi-smart. <laughs> See, that's a Donatello coming out. <laughs> that's right. I was doing Donatello right there. Uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, uh, Pat. You, you've, been, you've been such a monumental part of our childhood. Uh, you know, I, I can remember every Saturday morning, you know, listening to you and Shredder Bicker, you know, when I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't trade those Saturday morning memories for anything, so. If, if, if you weren't there, I wouldn't be here, you know. Um, and not only is it that fan base, but i, I got to tell you honestly, uh, like I said before, I, I, I had some pretty special Saturday mornings in the 50s and 60s. 
uh, watching people. I mean, when you get down to it, it's so weird because you grow up with them. And I'd meet right. these people. I was just, it was, I was in awe, like Hans Conried and uh, June Foray and Mel Blanc and people like that. And Doss Butler was so generous when I'd ask him questions. In fact, there was, a, there was also around there, there was a guy named Tex Avery. You ever heard of him? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he's like the king of cartoons. He created Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny. Oh, yeah. You know, he, he's probably like the king of it all. And he was, I used to call him at home and ask him questions about how he, did a cartoon or something, and he was so generous with me. It's uh, me being generous with users, modeled by other people that have come before and, and been and been cool. Wow. Uh, we want to also wanted to say thank you again, uh, Pat. And I know Rob and I are we're both really inspired by your work, and um, I I think it's really neat that you know you give God credit for for your talent, and you know we're Christians ourselves, and you know it's good to see somebody else that also shares our values and you know when you're trying to uh do a podcast that's i guess you could call it entertainment we're still trying to do it but it's always nice to see yeah. someone who uh who's a christian as well and you know that you're trying to put out entertainment that uh that is is family friendly and uh you know acknowledges acknowledges god yeah well you know um i'm just uh, i'm just have a up on the screen i got a gal that's her question is i'm wondering if you have any advice about being a christian in the liberal arts I mean, you know, it's a, it's something that I've dealt with for years. I, I turned down maybe three out of four auditions, let alone jobs. But God's faithful, and um, you know, I became I actually became a Christian right around the time, just a couple of years before Ninja Turtles, right? Oh, okay. And Towns and you know, like this, Towns and Coleman and I, he's a Christian, and we go to the sessions, and in the park parking lot, we pray, and we called it the Church of the Open Car Door. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I still was using bad, you know, language as habit. So I pray with him on the way in that I wouldn't get uh, blue. And then, of course, in the car going home, pray forgiveness because I did. <laughs> it was in the back of my mind. I had actually heard an interview uh, you had done a, a few years ago, I believe. And I remember thinking, man, he's so laid back and easy to talk to. And I just kind of. Uh, you know, you're so kind and generous to others, and I could just tell that from the interview that you gave with this one person, so that you were actually the first person we wanted to talk to. We thank the world of you and your work, and, uh, you know, we thank you so much for your work on the Ninja Turtles. That really was monumental for our childhoods, and uh, it's just been That's a blessing. Great. To, yeah, it's been a blessing to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much. And so, it's a, it's a ministry, so uh, mm-hmm. I'm glad you could figure that out. But, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, you let the light shine, and Hopefully they're God used in a meaningful way. Yeah. For Pat, thank you again. That that was a blast, man. Thanks, Pat. Welcome. Thank you. I enjoyed it too.